Good morning. This morning we'll be reading from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30, and you can find that on page 888 in your Pew Bible, or it's on the screen behind me. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is God's word. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to John 4 as we uh, look together at this story, and let's... uh, Pray and ask God to meet us now. Gracious Father, what a gift it is to be able to open this book and hear your voice. And Lord, that is what we pray we would hear this morning. Would you be at work in us through your spirit to give us ears to hear and eyes to see you. Wherever we are in our 
journey, Lord, whatever our backstory, uh, whatever our questions or doubts, whatever our fears, whatever our joys, would you meet us this morning here? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we finished working through the first letter of John, uh, which John wrote to us in order to give us confidence and assurance in a genuine relationship with God. We saw that note hit over and over throughout the letter that, that John wants to bolster our assurance of having a genuine abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. As we saw in the, one of the last verses of, of the book in chapter 5 verse, uh, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John uh, wants his readers, as we've seen, to have assurance of their salvation in Christ. But we've also seen that this assurance he's trying to give them is not a cheap assurance. It's not something like, yeah, at some point in middle school I signed my name on a card, or I went forward and I prayed a prayer, but nothing's really changed since then. Uh, He wants them to have a real confidence that can be tested and shown to be true. And if you've been with us as we've gone through this book, you'll remember the three tests of genuine faith that he has come back to again and again. First, the test of love, that God's children love one another in a real and practical way. The test of obedience, that God's children uh, seek to obey his word rather than kind of pursuing and making a practice of sin. And the test of doctrine. That God's children believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And and so as John kind of lands his book, that's the note he wants us to glory in and take confidence in, not in a a boastful sense, but in a humble confidence. Uh, He says in chapter 5, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come, And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That is what John has wanted us to walk away with from that from that letter, this confidence of an abiding relationship with Christ. Now, he wrote two more shorter letters that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks where he will go on to reaffirm the, the importance of being anchored in this truth of the gospel and what it looks like to kind of fellowship or have communion together in the truth of the gospel. But before we move on to those letters, uh, I wanted to stop this morning and ask a question. What if what John has been saying throughout his letter isn't true of my life? So what if... After going through this letter and these tests of genuine faith, I'm coming to the realization that, gee, I'm not sure I passed this test. You know, when I hear his call to love repeated over and over again, and I step back and I take an honest assessment of my life, I'm not sure that I really love people. I mean, I might be nice, but when push comes to shove, I'm going to choose whatever is best for me in every situation. What if that's dawning? On me, or or maybe it's the test of obedience that John's been holding up. 
Maybe that's where I feel that I fall short. Not just that sometimes I sin. Everybody sins sometimes. But that I really want to. Like I look at this and that's not the kind of life I want to live, if I'm honest. Uh, I don't think that these things that the Bible considers sinful should be sinful. Um, I think these commands are a burden or outdated or irrelevant, even some of them offensive. And so, you know, according to John, if that's kind of my posture or attitude towards sin, maybe I'm not actually a Christian. Or maybe it's the test of doctrine that is a barrier. You know, when it comes down to it, I'm just simply not convinced that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. We're going through these letters, and he's talking about it. And, you know, I'm, I think he probably existed. I'm sure he was a great guy, a uh, good teacher, a moral leader, but son of God. I just don't know if I can go there. Uh, you know, someone who is both God in the flesh, true human, true God at the same time, who, who gives his life to pay for our sin on the cross and rose again from the dead, that's hard to believe. And so what if I'm realizing through this journey that what John is saying about the tests of an abiding, a genuine relationship with God, that that isn't describing me. Where does that leave me if that's what I'm experiencing? Or, Or maybe if it's something my spouse or my child or my loved one is now realizing or I'm realizing about them, that, that maybe they don't actually see Jesus for who he is or trust him for what he came to do. Maybe I've known that all along. Maybe I didn't actually need First John to tell me that. But where does that leave me if I find myself or my loved one not passing this test of genuine faith, that, that, that there's these barriers that seem to stand between me and Jesus that I just cannot seem to get past? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And the way I want to do it is by looking at a story in John's gospel, the the larger narrative about Jesus' life that he wrote uh, before his letters, where in that story uh, we meet a woman who found herself in a very similar place. Standing before Jesus, but unable to see him for who he is, or what he actually came to do because of several barriers that were blocking her way. Several barriers that, uh, that we see here in John 4. And what I hope we see in looking at this story is not a Jesus who's standing there on the other side of the barrier, tapping his foot impatiently, when you're going to get it together, wagging his finger in condemnation, but a Jesus who patiently and persistently and compassionately pushes through those barriers that we put up between us and him in order to meet us where we are and give us eternal life. That's the vision of Jesus I hope we see this morning. If you find yourself on the other side of these obstacles or if your loved one finds themselves on the other side of those obstacles. And so John chapter 4, page 888. We've, we've landed in John several times throughout uh, our, our time in First John for obvious reasons that, that much of what John's doing in his letters 
is he's taking the message of his gospel and he's applying it to the life of the church. And so we find ourselves back here often. And in chapter 4, obviously picks up in the middle of the story. So the story's been going on for a little bit. Jesus has been ministering in Jerusalem. He's been you know, cleansing the temple and uh, conversing with Pharisees like Nicodemus in chapter 3. And his ministry is becoming uh, increasingly well-known. People are talking about him uh, enough that, that it's now beginning to eclipse John the Baptist's ministry. And the Pharisees are concerned about that. The Pharisees were kind of the Jewish leaders who really had power and control over God's people in that day. And they're nervous about John, but now they're really nervous about Jesus. Uh, John is not nervous about that, about Jesus eclipsing his ministry. He knows that that's been the point all along. He must increase, I must decrease. But because Jesus' hour had not yet come, and the cross is still off in the distance, this kind of recent flurry of attention tells Jesus it's time to leave Judea for a while and go back up to Galilee. But to get to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. That was the shortest and most common route. And along that route, what begins as a, as a simple rest stop at Jacob's well turns into a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And that begins when a woman, specifically a woman of Samaria, for some reason comes to draw water uh, from the well at the hottest hour of the day, around noontime, the sixth hour. And, and Jesus is alone at the well when she arrives, verse 8 tells us, and so then says to the woman, give me a drink. And in a lot of ways, that sounds like a an, you know, simple enough request, an innocent enough request. He's been traveling. He's thirsty. She's got a bucket. He doesn't. We learn in verse 11. So, you know, kind of makes sense. But that little request is what sparks the conversation that will change this woman's world forever. Not because she's looking for Jesus. She didn't come to the well looking for Jesus, but because Jesus is looking for her. But there's a problem. As Jesus points out in verse 10, she doesn't know who he is or what he came to do, what he's actually offering. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the son of God who came to give eternal life, but she can't see it. She can't see it. There are too many obstacles between her and Jesus, and there are four of them that we see in this passage. The first barrier is the influences of society in verses 7 through 9. And then the barrier of her limited uh, earthly perspective, you can call it, in verses 10 to 15. The barrier of her personal story of sin and brokenness in verses 16 to 18. And then the barrier of her religion in verses 19 to 26. So here's Jesus pursuing this woman, and in between them are four obstacles, four roadblocks that stand between her and the life that Jesus wants to give. And his simple question, give me a drink, is the pinprick that begins to crush and destroy each barrier. 
And so we see the first one, the social barrier in verses 7 to 9. Jesus asks her for a drink. Listen to her response in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There is a problem, according to the woman, in the fact that Jesus is talking to her and making this request. Uh, that, that, that he would do this is shocking to her on at least two levels. The first one, John spells out for us right there in his little parenthetical comment. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, or, or perhaps they do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. This is, to the typical first century Jew, the Samaritans were tainted goods. And so, so there's a bit of a backstory there, uh, a backstory that goes back at least 600 years, when the king of Assyria, who had carried off the If you remember back to the Old Testament, at one point Israel, the nation, had split into two different kingdoms, and there was the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. Well, in 722 uh, B.C., the king of Assyria comes in and he hauls off the northern tribes, and he brings in a bunch of other people to repopulate the land. And those new people intermarry with the remaining poorer Jews in the area, and that's where the Samaritans come from. You could read about that in 2 Kings 17. But when the southern tribes get back to the land from their exile, uh, the Samaritans in the north never quite measured up to them. They were racially impure, and they had departed from the standards of Jewish religion. They worshipped God at their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They didn't come and worship in Jerusalem like like God's word said. And, And they didn't even have the whole Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They just had Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was their only Bible. They didn't accept or acknowledge the rest of the books. And so to the Jews, the Samaritans were outside of the covenant. They were unclean. Now, imagine how centuries of that kind of animosity can leave its mark on society and the kind of social norms about how you're supposed to treat each other uh, with if you're a Jew and they're a Samaritan. There's this deep mutual su- suspicion and you can think of the, the suspicion or the disdain uh, that, that some Americans had toward Germans immediately following World War II. There's just kind of this collective, you know, uh, suspicion. Or Russians during the Cold War or Muslims today. You know, how is it that we're at a place in society where political leaders can talk about barring an entire religious group from the country? Where do you get that? There's this culture of suspicion and animosity. And that's, that's a picture of what the Jewish-Samaritan relationship was like, which is you know, why when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, that was such a radical uh, illustration. Because Samaritans and Jews don't do those kinds of things for each other. They don't trust each other. They have nothing to do with each other. And so what is he doing here? You know, a Jewish person asking a woman of, Samaritan, uh, of Samaria for a drink... From an unclean vessel of an unclean woman. That breaks the social barrier. That breaks the social categories. And so it's not surprising to see she's astonished. But that's not all she's shocked at. It's not just that that here's a Jew asking for a drink from a Samaritan. But here is a male Jew asking for a drink for a woman of Samaria. 
And, and the, the story emphasizes that level of awkwardness or suspicion, if you will, as well. For, for a man to interact with a woman alone at a well is not only to counter social norms, it's to kind of invite scandal. It'll get people talking. And you notice the, the disciples' reaction when they return in verse 27. They see him standing there alone with her, and like, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Society is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. And its rules are not easily forsaken. And so this story of animosity between Jews and Samaritans, that is a story that shaped their identities for centuries. That's a big barrier between her and what Jesus is trying to offer. And there are powerful social rules at play today as well. You think about um, what is it that can form a wall between us and following Jesus today. There are powerful social rules, and, and that's not hard to see. If you believe what the Bible teaches about morality or human sexuality or, or the supremacy and exclusivity of Jesus or heaven and hell, those are not popular subjects today. And they are very likely to get you marginalized virtually anywhere you go. There are strong social rules about what's appropriate and acceptable and what isn't. And so to be identified with Jesus or with the church today, there was a day once upon a time where that was kind of culturally advantageous. If you wanted to run for office in this country you know, 25 years ago, you had to say you belonged to some sort of church. Just, you know, you didn't have to believe it, but you just had to at least look like you did. Today, that's actually a liability. And so society's changing and morphing, and, and we find ourselves in, in a day where, where it's actually a liability to associate yourself with Jesus or with the Bible or with his people. And so you look at that, and a lot of us see a hurdle, a barrier. There's something between us and what Jesus is offering. We look at 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 him, and we look at our world, and I'm not sure these two things can coexist. This, this breaks my categories. This, this goes across my barriers. And, and so, you know, we, we, maybe we don't want to be seen with his people or, or identified with him. And so you, you then begin to ask, well, why is he even talking to me? I'm not one of those people. I don't want to be. Why is he talking to me? But what we see here is that Jesus does not let a social barrier stand in his way of pursuing us. We might put it in between us, but it doesn't keep him away. He doesn't let public perceptions or, or the social norms of the day come between him and his patient, persistent pursuit to give this woman life. What might be a deal breaker to us is simply a, a styrofoam wall that he just kind of knocks over and he keeps going. And so verses 10 to 15 show us the second barrier in this woman's world, which is an obstacle we also share as members of this fallen creation, and that is our earthly perspective, our earthliness. So in other words, Jesus and his gift operate in heavenly categories. We are constrained by our earthliness such that 
we can't even make sense of what he's saying or offering apart from God opening our eyes. We, we're stuck at the earthly level. He's operating at the heavenly level. And you see that dilemma in verse 10. Again, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And again in verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water here in Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is talking in heavenly categories. John tells us throughout his narrative, he's the one who came from heaven in order to give his life and give us eternal life. The same life that John's been talking about in his letters, this abiding, unending, intimate relationship with the God of the universe made possible by the cross and empowered by the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus means when he talks about living water here. That's what he wants to give her, eternal life. Which is, of course, is is a wordplay. That word living water, that's one way of, of describing a stream or a well that's actually flowing somewhere as opposed to dead water, which would be a stagnant pond that has no inlet or outlet. And so so living water, it sounds like this stream thing, but, but it's also the language of new life by God's Spirit. It's a metaphor used in the Old Testament several times. It's in Ezekiel 37, or 36, Isaiah 44, Jeremiah 2. And later in John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains what the metaphor means in the next verse. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So John's talking about heavenly categories, heavenly offerings, heavenly gifts of eternal life. But when the woman hears this offer of of, of living water, she's thinking in earthly categories. Look at her response in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He offers her a heavenly gift, and she's thinking, Wow, I won't have to make this trip here every day anymore. How awesome would that be? She's focused on the need of the moment being relieved of this burden. And, and, and her earthly category, this focus, is a barrier between her seeing Jesus for who he is and what he came to do. Uh, it, and it's a problem we see throughout the narrative of John. You go to the story just before this one, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the, uh, the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is scratching his head saying, How in the world am I supposed to enter again into my mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus is talking heavenly categories. Nicodemus is all confused. And and the disciples, his own disciples, have the same experience later in chapter 4. Jesus is talking about a bread that they don't know about, uh, specifically doing the will of God. And and they're thinking, you know, who's got the butter? You know, what what do we do? And so, you know, we have these... 
we find ourselves in that same category. We have this earthly perspective that constrains us for understanding or seeing what God is doing in the heavenly realm. For some of us, our need to explain everything in earthly categories is what uh, makes us skeptical of Jesus. And because he claims to be and do things that are not scientifically possible to be or to do. People can't walk on water. They don't turn water into wine, and they certainly don't rise from the dead. So, so my, if, if, I, if my goal, if, if I have to fit Jesus into my academically accepted categories of what's possible and what's not, I'm going to run into problems there. My earthly categories don't fit. Uh, for others, it's, it's not that we can't believe those things. It's that we can't lift our eyes above the need of the moment to even consider those things. So we're just barely keeping our head above water. You know, I have bills to pay. I have soccer games to ref. I have dance recitals to attend. Business lunches. And, and how is Jesus going to help me get those things done? That's the question we're asking. You know, he's the Prince of Peace. Does that mean I'm finally going to get five minutes to myself? He's the bread of life. Is he going to make the kids lunches tonight, or do I still have to do that? You know, our eyes are so fixed on the need of the moment that the idea that there's something bigger or more important or more life-changing or more satisfying than just making it through another day, it's just beyond our horizon. It doesn't even register. But even if we have a hard time, considering Jesus in terms of these heavenly categories that doesn't keep us keep him away from pursuing us. She can't make sense of him. He doesn't say, well, guess this one's a lost cause and move on. He keeps patiently pushing through one more barrier in order to give her eternal life. The third barrier, the third obstacle is a bit more personal. Verses 16 to 18. It's her story of sin and brokenness. So you're reading the narrative and the first hint that, that we have that this woman maybe has something to hide comes from the fact that she came to collect water at the heat of the day rather than in the cool of the morning when everybody else was likely to be at the well. And so you, can, you read that and it, and it goes off it's like, that's interesting wonder what what she's got to hide. Well, then verse 16, Jesus exposes what she has to hide. He exposes her need for a Savior. She asks for the water that he offers so that she doesn't have to keep coming to the well. And instead of explaining his metaphor, like actually when I said living water, I was talking about the Holy Spirit, not this whole, you know, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, go call your husband and come here. That's a really weird, weird corner in the conversation. You think about it. You know, I'll take the water. Go call your husband. And she answers honestly enough. I have no husband. And then Jesus begins to open her eyes a little bit more and give her a clearer understanding of just who it is she's talking to. He says in verse 17, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. He knows about her past marital scandals and her present immorality. You cannot hide 
sin and brokenness from Jesus. But here's the best part of that. You don't have to. You don't have to. The Lord is aware of every hidden thought, of every careless and cruel word that we've ever spoken with our lips or mumbled under our breath. He knows every ungodly action, every time we chose to please ourselves rather than God, even at the expense of others. God knows our sin. There's no hiding it. And he knows our brokenness and our suffering too. And we know from Jesus' words that the woman is presently in a sexually immoral relationship. We don't know the nature of her past five marital relationships, whether you know, she was to blame or whether she was the victim of her husband's infidelity and sin. Maybe both. We don't know. The point is, is that Jesus is aware of our sin and the damaging effect it can have. He's aware of the sins committed against us and the wounding and dehumanizing effect that can have. And despite it all, he still wants to make us his own. Think about that. He knows everything, all the stuff we want to hide from each other. He knows it all and he still wants us. He's still pursuing us. We see our sin as a barrier. It's a wall between us and God. Jesus, in his grace, knocks it down. You know, you notice it when he reveals his knowledge of this woman's painful story. He doesn't proceed then to chastise her or to condemn her or to publicly humiliate her. Not because what she did wasn't actually wrong or didn't matter. It was sin, and it did matter to God but because he came to deal with that brokenness and sin. He came to deal with it and to offer her an adequate solution to it by taking it and making it his own on the cross, that he might free us and cleanse us and make us new. Offer this living water, this gift of life. Jesus sees us in our sin, and he's not tapping his foot impatiently or waving his finger judgmentally. He is pushing forward through that barrier. He wants to make us his own. But as he breaks through the personal barrier to expose her real need, that what she needs is not water, she needs forgiveness and new life through the Spirit, as he kind of now breaks through that personal barrier and exposes his knowledge of her sin, the woman responds as anyone might when their morality is called into question. She brings up her religion. That's the fourth barrier in verses 19 to 16. To be a Samaritan is not only a matter of social and cultural identity, it is also a matter of religion. And the woman seems relatively familiar and even maybe a little bit proud of her Samaritan religion. Uh, Now, you follow the story, and it's kind of interesting the the sharp turns it takes. Whether she's trying to evade Jesus' question by bringing up religion, or whether she realizes, I've got a prophet in front of me, now I can maybe get some answers. You know, we're not exactly sure. But she, she redirects the conversation to one of the central points 
of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. The proper place of worship. Verse, uh, verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now, that's a legitimate theological question. That's not just a smokescreen, though she might be using it that way. It's a real debate. It's a real question, and it has a real impact on how Jews and Samaritans try to relate with God. Where do we go to worship? And yet, as Jesus gently points out, it's no longer the right question now that the Messiah is here. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus does gently correct her that the Jews actually have a a historical and a covenantal priority uh, in that salvation is from the Jews. It's through the descendants of Abraham and the covenant with David that, that the Messiah comes. But his main point is that with the coming of the Messiah, things are going to be different for both Jews and Samaritans and everyone else. All of the outward expressions of Israel's faith, the temple, the sacrifices, the the offices of prophet and priest and king, all of these were pointing forward to the arrival of Israel's king and Messiah. And now that he's here... What was true of the temple in Israel's religion is now true of Jesus. He is the special place of God's presence on earth. He is where you go to meet with God on earth. The God who is in heaven. He's God in the flesh who made his tent. He tabernacled among us, John tells us. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Talking about his body. And so... And, and, and then when God pours out the Spirit on Pentecost, which is Sunday we recognize next week, the church becomes the temple of God, the place of his special presence on earth, now scattered throughout the earth. And so, so with the arrival of the Messiah, worship is going to look different. It's no longer fixed to a place. It is about a people filled with the Spirit of God who worship him wherever they are who worship in both spirit and truth. And so her question, it's, it's honest, but it's kind of a moot point. It no longer matters where the temple is now that Jesus is here. Why do you care about the shadow when the substance is standing right in front of you? And, and yet the woman, not yet recognizing Jesus for who he is, she's still unconvinced. And so in, in a somewhat ironic twist, she attempts to kind of just end the conversation by, in verse 25, by deferring to the coming of the Messiah who will sort it all out for us when he gets here. Verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. 
he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. We don't have to settle this today, our little religious debate. When the Messiah gets here, we're going to find out who's right and who's wrong. Kind of her her last-ditch effort, which couldn't set Jesus up more perfectly. And so he just comes right out and tells her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. At that point in the conversation, you might expect like a mic drop or something like that. Boom, you know. But this isn't about a petty triumph in a little debate. This is about Jesus patiently, persistently pursuing this woman's heart. And just as the influences of society and the constraints of our earthliness and the baggage of our personal stories can cloud our vision of Jesus and become an obstacle, so can our religion. We all have ideas about how we should relate to God. Some of those ideas are biblical. Some of them are not. Some of us grew up believing that our little denomination was the only real way to know God. Some of us are convinced that all religions are essentially the same and that everybody's on their way to the top of the same mountain. For some of us, having a relationship with God is all about keeping the right rules. For others, we believe that if God loves us, he gets rid of the rule book and just wants us to be happy for who we are. God does have expectations about how we ought to relate to him. He cares about those things. He tells us a lot about them in the scriptures. He cares about our obedience and our worship. But so much of what passes as religion is rules made by men. And and these can blind us from seeing the truth of who Jesus really is and what it is he's actually offering to us. He came to give us eternal life, not based on our good works or our effort, but by his grace through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't let your religious ideas come between you and who Jesus is really showing himself to be. A Savior who patiently, persistently, compassionately pushes through every barrier that we put up in order to meet us where we are with the gift of life. And when the woman finally sees who Jesus is and begins to understand what he's actually offering, something changes dramatically. This same woman who had come to the well secretly under the cover of the day's heat now leaves her water jar and runs into town to give public testimony to Jesus. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And verse 39 tells us that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And as he spends time with them, many more believe because of his own word. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Jesus patiently pushes through those barriers to meet us where we are, to give us eternal life. 
And I want all of us to know this morning, wherever you are, whatever barriers may be between you and the Lord, or between your husband or your wife or your child or your friend or your neighbor and the Lord, whatever God has shown you about your relation, your relationship with him, this offer is for you. It is for your spouse, for your children, for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Jesus came that we may have life. And he tells us to come to him. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come drink deeply of Jesus. His gift is for you. May we heed his voice this morning and live. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you know the condition of every heart. Lord, you see us. You see the questions that we bring, the doubts that we have, the guilt that we bear, shame, the sadness. You see the hurt the anger. You see everything, Lord. Thank you that when you see us, you don't cast us off or throw us down, but you pursue us. Even when we're not looking for you, you come looking for us. What a Savior. God, I pray that we would rejoice and rest in you, our Savior. I pray for those who have barriers between them that they just can't seem to to get past. Lord, would you push them down and come? Would you give the gift of life? Would you help us to see that what you offer is something that, that cannot be stolen or worn out or decay? It's not something anyone can can spoil or take away from us. It's something that endures to eternity and it is something more satisfying than anything this world offers. It's you. You are the gift. God, may we believe and rest and rejoice in that gift. And may we never grow weary of that rest and rejoicing every day. We praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name.